6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Ezra, chapters 4 through 7. Then Darius the king made a decree, and the search was made in the house of the rolls, where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And there was found at Akmetha, in the palace that is in the province of the Medes, not the Babylonians, on the Medes, a roll, and therein was a record thus written. Akmetha is probably a variation, if you will, of Ekbatana. It's the capital, the, the, it's the capital of the old Median, Median uh, 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 Empire. And the scroll was Ekbatana, because, by the way, that's where Cyrus spent the summer of 538 when the decree was granted. And he issued the decree. In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundation thereof be strongly laid. And the height thereof was three score cubits, and the breadth thereof three score cubits. By the way, that sounds good, but that's half the size of Solomon's temple. So from, from, a, from a Jewish point of view, that's very disappointing, but at least it's a, it's a step. With three rows of great stones and a row of new timber, let the expenses be given out of the king's house. In other words, Cyrus is paying the bill. That's got to be impressive. I'm always interested to see who's right signing the checks. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple, which is at Jerusalem, be brought unto Babylon, be restored, and brought again unto the temple, which is at Jerusalem, every one to his place, and place them in the house of God. And now therefore, Tatnai the governor, beyond the river, uh, Sheth Harbozani and your companions and the Aphrodites, which are beyond the river, be ye far from thence. <laughs> In other words, that's a be uh, that 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 puts it pretty straight. Be be ye far. Let's see. I've got a, a more critical. Yeah, be far. It's a. It happens to be a very common Aramaic legal statement. Uh, it. Uh, in other words. Uh, uh, What's the term I'm, I'm fumbling here? Restrain, thank you, a restraining order. Excellent. That's what we would call a restraining order, yes. Be far from thence. In other words, you stay away from them, is what he's saying. Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Moreover, I make a decree. Get this now. He knows how to, he, this guy is a good administrator. He, he makes it, he, he gets rid of any ambiguities here. Moreover, I make a decree that ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river. Now, this is going to come out of the budgets of the people doing the complaining. <laughs> Forthwith, expenses be given unto these men that they be not hindered. Ooh, <laughs> that's kind of fun, but he's not through. And that which they have need of, both young bullocks and rams and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the God of heaven, and pray for the life of the king and of his sons. He's, he's saying, you know, they're going to pray for us too, see? 
and I have made a decree. Now get this, in case, in case they don't understand, Darius is going to explain it a little more clearly, okay? Also I've made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, and let his house be made a dunghill for this. You get the picture, right? I might give you another technicality. When you read the book of Esther, you find that you know they keep talking about Haman hanging on gallows and so forth. That's a mistranslation. What they actually, what the word actually means is impaled. The Persians are the ones that invented crucifixion, and it it gets really adopted by the Romans very broadly. But its origin is in the Persian days. They don't hang; they impale. So very likely these are early forms of crucifixion he's talking about. Let him be hanged thereon. No, nailed thereon, impaled thereon. And let his house be made a dunghill for this. Now this is the king talking. You know. And the God that hath caused his name to dwell there, destroy all kings and people that shall put their hand to altar and destroy this house of God which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree. Let it be done with speed. <laughs> Let's visualize Yule Brenner. Yeah? So let it be written, so let it be done, kind of thing. You know, like that. <laughs> and Tatnai the governor on this side of the river, and Chef Harpaz and I, and their companions, according to that which Darius the king had sent, so they did speedily. <laughs> I think they saluted, and you could hear the rubber burn as they headed home. <laughs> And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They builded and finished it according to the commandment of God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes the king of Persia. See, Esther, excuse me, Ezra the scribe is giving you sort of an overview here. He's talked about several things, sort of out of chronological order. That's okay. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. The children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the children of captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy and offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bullocks and two hundred rams and four hundred lambs for a sin offering for all Israel, twelve he-goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. It's always twelve. See, there's twelve tribes involved. And that's why we think back in the list there were eleven. There's probably one that dropped by one of the scribes, as I mentioned back way back there and so forth. And uh, so... Now, the, the numbers sound here pretty big, but they're actually very small compared to Solomon. Solomon, you may recall, offered 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep. So, you know, you talk a couple hundred here. This is small potatoes compared to the, the glory days of Solomon. And that, of course, grieves many here. And uh, Now, it's interesting that they have 12 he-goats. The 12 goats for the sin offering show that the post-exile community still envisioned here a unified Israel consisting of all 12 tribes, even though there's only two that really survived with any strength, Judah and Benjamin. And that's surprising because Benjamin was the smallest of the tribes. But you can infer from all of this that all 12 are represented, and we'll see that confirmed in the New Testament and elsewhere. But let's move on. They set the tri- And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is in Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. And the children of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And uh, so, now beginning with verse 19, this all switches back to Hebrew. It's been in Aramaic 
from chapter 2 on. So, um, and now this is the first time in 70 years that they've been able to celebrate uh, the, uh, the feasts and so forth. And for the priests and the Levites were purified together. All of them were pure and killed the Passover for all the children of the captivity and for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. And the children of Israel, which were come again out of the captivity, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord of God, did eat and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them. Uh, to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now the reference here is very strange because it's referring to Darius as the king of Assyria. It may sound strange because he's king of far more than that. But in, in his, as a king of Persia, it included what used to be Assyria. And he's making reference to Assyria because that was the, that's where these people were, some of them had come from, from the Assyrian captivity. So he's using a, a reflexive here. So he turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them. And that's because that gets back to the, uh, the prophecies back there in Isaiah and the rest. So on the one hand, they, the, the, those, the, the, the nation, the, North, the northern kingdom no longer exists as a kingdom. The remnants of those people that are among these here are celebrating the return to the land. And it's, uh, they keep the feast of unleavened bread seven days of joy. For the Lord hath made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria. It's a reflexive. See, he's the now king of Assyria, because he's the king of Persia, and over all this, has turned to make this all possible. You follow me? Am I making sense? It's a reflexive. It's an ellipsis, if you will. Now, this is about 900 years after the first Passover. And it's signaled, of course, the end of the exile for the remnant of the nation, because they're once back and they're in fellowship with Jehovah. And since the uh, temple worship was re- restored, it's important for people who want to be in fellowship with God uh, and live according to the covenantal obligations to be in place where the sacrificial system could not be practiced. So now the people had seen firsthand the works of God in history because he caused pagan kings to issue decrees uh, which let them return to the land of promise. That's the same thing he sort of did in Egypt. The Exodus is very much a similar kind of thing. It was the, 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 when they were uh, they released from the bondage of Pharaoh. So now the original readers of the book of uh, uh, Ezra, way back, would be encouraged to participate fully in temple worship, which of course had been reestablished at such great cost. So we have uh, one more chapter. Now there's something I should mention. Um, uh-huh. Okay, let's just keep going here. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, and the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, these, this is the, um, the um, genealogy, if you will, of Ezra. And uh, the son of, and it goes through all this anyway, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. In other words, see, uh, Ezra descends ultimately from, uh, from Aaron. There are some omissions in this list. They're not, it's not exhaustive, but anyway... This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was ready scribe for the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And there went up some of the children of Israel, and of the priests, and the Levites, and the singers, and porters, and the Nethanims unto Jerusalem, the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And he came to Jerusalem the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. Upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. And Ezra hath prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach Israel statutes and judgments. 
So now we're talking about Ezra personally participating here. Up till now, he's been dealing as a historian, see? Now this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes in Israel. Artaxerxes, the king of kings, unto Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Perfect peace, and at such a time. I make a decree that they of the people of Israel, all his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go to Jerusalem, go with thee. This is a second group. So we had the first big group come under Zerubbabel, about 50,000 in rough terms. We got another group coming under Ezra. It's only be a couple of thousand, but it's, it's, a, it's another uh, incursion, if you will. For as much as thou hast sent of the king and of seven counselors to inquire concerning Jude and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God, which is in thine hand, and to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered unto the God of Israel, whose habitation is in Jerusalem, and all the silver and gold thou canst find in all the province of Babylon, with the free will offering of the people and of the priests willingly offering willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem, that thou mayest buy speedily with this money bullocks, rams, lambs, and their meat offerings, and their drink offerings, and offer them upon the altar, the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. Whatsoever shall seem good to thee and to thy brethren, to do with the rest of the silver and gold, that do after the will of your God. So that's gracious. You follow what's going on here? The vessels also that are given thee from the service of the house of God, those deliver thou before the God of Jerusalem. So there's still some left that they didn't bring on the first trip. They're getting it here, leftover stuff. Whatsoever more shall be needful for the house of thy God, which thou shalt have occasion to bestow, bestow it out of the king's treasure house. They got they got a, a blank check here. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, do make a decree to all the treasures which are beyond the river, that whatsoever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, shall require of you, it be done speedily. Unto a hundred talents of silver, and to a hundred measures of wheat, and to a hundred baths of wine, and to a hundred baths of oil and salt, without prescribing how much. Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also we certify you that touching any of the priests and Levites and singers and porters and nethanims and ministers of the house of God, it shall not be lawful to impose toll, tribute, or custom upon them. Notice this. He is giving them tax-free status. This is Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes the first. He's the one that will have a cupbearer by the name of Nehemiah. Of course, coming, it's going to be quite a bit downstream here. But Nehemiah has his, finds favor in his sight, and Nehemiah gets the thing that's been missing, and that's the authority to really build Jerusalem. Up till now, we're talking the temple. The temple's in good shape. It's the city of Jerusalem. It's the trigger for the 70-week prophecy of Daniel in Daniel 9. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know them not. And whosoever will not do the law of thy God... And the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death, or to banishment, or to confiscation of goods, or to imprisonment. He gives them judicial authority to administer judgment. This is impressive. It's a good prelude to what's forthcoming. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and hath extended mercy. There's that word. It's actually chesed, that covenantal love, that very loyal kind of love to the people. Send mercy unto me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And as I was strengthened, as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered together out of the chief, out of Israel, chief men to go with me. 
And so we have the close of chapter 7. Now, what happens in between here, I believe it actually happens between 6 and 7 technically, there's the whole book of Esther. And the book of Esther um, uh, is important to understand because in the book of Esther, you have, by a strange set of circumstances, uh, Esther is picked to be queen. Queen Vashti uh, declines to be uh, humiliated in front of a banquet, and so the king uh, banishes her and looks for a new queen. Esther finds favor, in, and she's been raised by her uncle, Mordecai, and uh, he coaches her. But she, uh, the king doesn't know she's Jewish. And uh, the, 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 the background plot, there's a guy by the name of Haman, who is a Hitler-type character. He's the like the number two. He's the you know the, the the prime minister. What do you want to call him? He's really running things for the king. The king is Artaxerxes. He's probably Xerxes. Uh, very capricious, by the way. If you examine his career separately from the Book of Esther, he's kind of a wild guy, very fearsome guy, very capricious. And I won't get into all that here. But anyway, um, it turns out that Haman is a, on a real ego trip. And there's this guy Mordecai is sort of the hidden hero of the whole pic. He's he's uh, Mordecai's an interesting character, but uh, Haman expects Mordecai to bow before him because he's the big vizier, he's the big uh, chief of police kind of guy, and Mordecai refuses to do that. And so Haman is really upset. He's got everything else he wants, but Mordecai doesn't yield. So that becomes a bone in his throat. He's really after Mordecai. He's so anxious to get after Mordecai, he tricks the king into issuing a decree to wipe out all the Jews in the Persian Empire. It's a very, you know, Nazi kind of thing going on here. And uh, it turns out that the night just before the banquet, the big banquet that uh, Esther throws, um, the king happens not to be able to sleep. And so he decides to, as a way of, I don't know what you do when you can't sleep, so one of the things you can do is read. And often you read something that you normally wouldn't read, and that may put you to sleep, you know. Well, he goes back and reads some chronicles that he hadn't read before, and he notices something way back... There was an incident where Mordecai revealed a plot against the king, and as a result, the guy was caught and, and dealt with. But he realized from the record that nothing had ever been done for Mordecai. And so he wakes up in the morning, tr- bothered by that. Nothing had ever been done for this guy, Mordecai. So he runs into Haman. It's one of these great scenes. Uh, he tr- king says to Haman, what should the king do if he really wants to honor somebody? And Haman figures, oh, he's talking about me. He says, well, I, I, what you want to do with him, you, if you want to really honor somebody, you'll let him ride your horse with your robe and be led around through the place so everybody knows you're on. You know, he, he, he develops this elaborate thing, thinking he's the guy that's going to benefit from this. Right? And the king says, you know, that's a good idea. I want to do that to Mordecai. <laughs> it's one of those great scenes. You know, here's Haman. He's in big trouble. It's just beginning. So Haman has to take Mordecai through the city and, you know, and Mordecai, they're not looking for all this pomposity, but he gets, he's, he's really extolled as a big guy. But that just makes Haman madder than any. In fact, he has gallows constructed as a way of the text here. He's, anyway, he's gonna, he's out to get Mordecai. So, anyway, he, he's tricked the, the, the king into this decree. And the, and, and the date that, that's all gonna happen will be decided by lot, by, by, by throwing lots, uh, like rolling the dice, so to speak. Well, Mordecai realizes the predicament they're in, and he tells Esther that she's got to go to the king and, and, and let him know what's going on here. And because of the protocol there, she, if she goes before the king without being invited, she's risking her life. You can't go before the king unless you're invited. But she realizes that, uh, in fact, there's a big show where Mordecai says, you've got to do this. And uh, she says, uh, and he says, you're, it's for such a time as this. 
you have an opportunity to, to, to serve God's people. And so her attitude is, if I die, I die. She goes recognizing it, it might be fatal for her because of the protocol. But uh, when she goes there, the king holds out a scepter, which means, okay, come on in. And uh, so she, uh, she invites, actually what she does, she invites him to a banquet. It's, it's, it's a little more complicated. But the net, net of it is, um, he finally discovers uh, from Esther that Haman is put out this edict to kill all the Jews. And it's done in such a way that the king can't reverse it. That's what's so strange about the plot line. But um, he does, because there's a scene in which Haman looks as if, he, he actually is so panicked because he realizes that the king is so upset that he steps out on the balcony for a minute. And Haman is so shook because he realizes his life is in the balance. He drops to his knees in front of Esther to beg for, you know, beg her to go. And as he does so, the king comes back in and it looks compromising. And that really does it. He has Haman impaled on the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, right? But that doesn't solve the whole problem. What the king does, he issues a decree. He can't undo the decree that was written because of the way that they work. But he can give a decree to allow the Jews to protect themselves. And at the right time they do, and that saves the, that saves the Jews and the Persian Empire. And they celebrate that in what they call Purim. Purim is, the word actually means lots because the casting of lots is part of the story. But when they celebrate, it's a very, it's, a, it's what is it, usually in February time in our, in our calendar. Um, it's a, it's a, it's almost like a Mardi Gras. I, or that's not a bad good example. It's a time of joy making and, and celebration. It's not like some of the Jewish holidays, which are one of solemnity and fasting. It's a, Purim is, is a, is a party, if you will. But, um, uh, the, uh, what's interesting when you look at this more deeply, Haman is an Agagite. He's a descendant of the king of Agag. If you remember, Solomon was supposed to kill and didn't. And, if, and uh, as a result, we have Haman. Uh, if you may re- remember when David was um, being cursed by this guy, running all the way, cursing David, and the men wanted to kill him, and David says, no, let him curse, remember? Shimei's descendant is Mordecai. So w- these two guys that are the player, main players of the book of Esther, one of them is a result of somebody that David should have, that, that, the Saul, that Saul was supposed to kill and didn't. And the other was one that David was told by his men to kill and he refused to. You with me? Kind of interesting to see how it all weaves together. Book of Esther, very interesting book. That, that all happens between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra. It's totally, from Ezra's point of view, incidental to the, to the temple and all this. It really isn't. If it hadn't been for the book of Esther, there'd be no temple. You see, so because the Jews would have been slaughtered by their enemies, but it's going to get it's going to get on. Uh, we're going to, as we finish, we'll finish the book of Ezra, uh, Ezra in the next session, uh, chapters eight, nine, and ten, and then uh, the book of Nehemiah focuses on a much bigger issue. Strange enough, not bigger uh, spiritually in the sense the temple is important because that sets up the nation now to return to their covenant relationship. But part of what's, they're getting harassed by their enemies and they need to be able to have the authority to rebuild the wall. And that's what Nehemiah is able to get from his boss and sets up the drama that takes place in the book of Nehemiah. And gives rise, if you will, it's a trigger to the most astonishing passage in the entire Bible. The passage that really galvanized me into a, to the realization that Jesus really is uh, provably, demonstrably, the Messiah of Israel. And so the book of Nehemiah, very important next time. So with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. It's by our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you 
that you're always behind the scenes on behalf of your people. We, we watch, Father, and we see so many lessons here. But we recognize Ezra's priorities, Father. The first priority is to get right with you and to be obedient to your word. And even though we're not under the law, Father, we're under a new covenant, Father, we do seek to really understand what it is you'd have of us in the days ahead. We thank you for your word, Father. We thank you for the continual reaffirmation that you mean what you say and you say what you mean as we watch these prophecies, not only in their scope, but also in their detail, so precisely fulfilled in terms of the movement of nations and kings all the way to the the little subtle details of the calendar. We just thank you, Father, for the preciousness of your word. And Father, we look with great excitement to what's forthcoming as we as we begin to understand that you have a plan and that you are in control, just as you were in control behind the scenes in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. You're also in control behind the scenes today. We watch with great fascination what you're going to do with respect to Jerusalem and with respect to Babylon. We watch with great fascination, Father. But above all, Father, we would seek above all things to know your heart, Father. That we would, we would hope to learn, Father, what pleases you and what disappoints or angers you, Father. Help us, Father, to understand that. Help us to have our hearts tuned to you. That our priorities would be your priorities, Father. Help us, Father, as we go forward. Help us, Father, to be fruitful stewards of the opportunities you place before us as we commit ourselves without reservation into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ezra. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.